Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 28, Tell Him Everything. So as we continue our journey, today will be brief, but I hope this episode offers something to consider should we need to provide care for loved ones in an ICU, or if we find ourselves as patients in an ICU ourselves someday. It has to do with knowledge, information. This was the first day I was realizing I had to even think about such things, day five. And this is the day I got a real wake-up call from Archer, the patient. What to share with the patient? What not to share with the patient? Not always easy answers. So settle in, get comfortable, get quiet perhaps. While it's going to be short and sweet, it will hopefully give you something to think about and something to talk to your loved ones about. Here we go. I could call this episode While Billy Waits. August 9th, day five, midnight. I knew Billy was on his way for our nightly changing of the guard. He had texted me at 11.16 p.m., leaving now. I felt a little flutter in my arms and shoulders because he added a little red heart emoji at the end of his text. Gosh, I needed that. It was sweet. It almost made me shiver a little like a good hug. Maybe we were going to be okay. I texted him back. Thumbs up emoji and XO. The trauma unit seemed to get quiet around 11 p.m. or midnight after the nurses had made their night rounds. The main sounds in Archer's room were the constant monitors and a new swooshing sound that seemed to be louder from the tubes. Archer had been sleeping and awoke alert and bright-eyed. Hey there, how are you feeling? You look rested. Can I get you anything? I asked. He looked at me and blinked slowly twice. Okay. You okay? He again looked at me and blinked once. Hmm. He seemed unusually at ease and calm. So I asked, Hey, Arch, is it okay to talk about what happened now? I had told Archer yesterday and again this morning that when he was ready, I was ready to listen. I still felt this burning desire to be a witness for him. Knowing enough about trauma and that trauma needs a witness. And if he could have that experience while the story was fresh, I thought, and before it got distorted, it might make things easier for him. I took a deep breath. I was also very aware of my own need to hear more about the details of how it all happened so I could know what to do. I was haunted by the freakiness of it all. How could this have even happened? Archer looked at me 
his eyes very bright and blinked once. Okay. Wow. It appears he's willing to talk about it. I said to him, hang on, okay? I'll get the ABC board. I looked at Archer. It appeared he was okay with that. As I walked back to his bed, I felt the thoughts racing through my head. Was it all just a fluke? Did something go wrong? What was out there in the ocean? And what was it like for Archer? I shuddered. I was flooded with unanswered questions. I realized I needed to really ground myself as I sat back down so I could listen. I was so grateful for the time I had had with him in the operating room before his surgery and what he had told me then. I wondered if he had more to say. As I held the ABC board, I looked at him and asked, where do you want to start? I waited. When there was nothing, I put my head down and rested my hands in my lap. I really wanted to be present for him and would sit as long as he needed. But after more silence, I then asked him, want me to tell you what James told me about the accident? He looked right at me again, and he blinked once. Okay. So I began. I told him James reported that no one actually saw what happened. I imagined that was new information for Archer. I told him James had said he and Davis saw him taking off down the beach running to meet up with James, but that was all they saw. I told him that James said he had entered the ocean a little further down the beach ahead of Archer, diving in after putting on his flippers, a classic ocean lifeguard thing to do when you go out in the ocean still on duty. Do you remember James putting on his flippers? I asked him. He blinked once. <laughs> yeah, you can move through the ocean pretty fast in flippers. Archer just stared at me. He seemed to take in what I said. I asked him, is what James said accurate? He blinked once. I then told him, James said he was a pretty good distance away when he saw you, and it took about a minute to get to you once he figured out something was wrong. He said he could only see the top of your back. I think it was very confusing for him to see you. He said he swam as fast as he could, but it was 50 or 75 yards. He said that when he got to you, you were unconscious. He thought a couple minutes had passed from when he first saw you to when he turned you over in the water. Is this helpful to know, Archer? Archer continued looking right at me. I asked, do you remember anything else? Just then, Billy texted me, five minutes. I texted him back, take your time. Good talks now with Arch, XO. I told Archer, dad'll be here soon. Archer continued looking at me Without distraction, he began in full sentences, one letter at a time, 
and this is what he told me. I asked Rocky if I could take a break and go for a dip in the ocean. The kitchen was so hot. I jogged down the walkway to the lifeguard stand. I joked around with Davis and James about how hot it was. James said he'd go in with me. He ran down first with his flippers. I took off my sweaty shirt and shoes. Then I ran. The water felt great. I was about thigh high in the waves, looking for a good wave when I dove. I got another text from Billy. Here. Our usual would be that I would race down to the parking lot as fast as I could, ensuring that Archer was not in any outward distress, and Billy and I would have our nightly fire drill. And depending on what happened on his drive and how agitated he was, or if the security guards had given him a hard time for waiting for me, if I was anything more than like two minutes getting there, he'd sometimes give me a kiss as he got out of the driver's seat and I slipped in and sometimes not, as he just beelined it to the hospital entrance back to Archer. I knew he had waves of overwhelm, too. And there was a fair amount of pressure from the security guards to move it along. I texted Billy. Okay, do you want to switch cars or park? He knew that was my way of saying, I am not in a hurry to go home, and I'm happy to stay a while. He texted, switch, but he quickly followed it with, I'm waiting outside. Take your time. <laughs> it's just funny how Billy and I communicated, knowing each other so well. My gosh, we'd been together then for over 30 years, almost 33, actually, as we met in 1982, and we're pretty much inseparable from the first moment we laid eyes on each other at a country party. <laughs> it was like that. I texted him. I'll come soon. I'm with Archer. He knew what that meant. Okay, we can switch. And I'm on my way, but not exactly. That's what that meant. Archer was awake or needed something. Or we were in the middle of something. Billy understood that. He texted, ETA? I knew he was waiting at the curb outside, or perhaps circling the block if the security guards were out and active. I felt the tension between pleasing my husband and ending my conversation with Archer and wanting to hear the rest of the story. It was a familiar feeling for me of wanting to please too many people at the same time. Maybe you have had that experience as well. Well, Archer was definitely still bright-eyed, and I could tell he wasn't finished. He still looked at me. So I was eager to listen and try to understand. I texted Billy four minutes later, Please go ahead and park. Archer asked me to stay. I will a little bit and then go. He spiked a fever. When I read that text five years later to reconstruct this, it reminded me, right, Archer had asked me to stay. I remember it well now. I had said, I better go, Arch. Dad's downstairs. And he just looked at me. And I said, I could stay if you wanted. And he blinked his eye. I remember he was so bright-eyed, but also was beginning to have a little beaded dampness on his forehead and all over his face. I put my hand on his forehead and he was burning up. 
I summoned a nurse. Archer continued. I dove in and heard a loud boom. It was like a bomb. I tried to close my mouth as water was rushing in. I tried to swim but couldn't move my legs. I tried to push myself up off the bottom of the ocean but couldn't move my arms. I knew I was paralyzed. I held my breath and prayed someone saw me. I was counting the seconds, but no one was coming. I begged God to send James to get me. I couldn't hold my breath any longer because the water was seeping into my lungs. And then everything went black. Yes? Arch? Is there anything else? There was a long pause. I said, Archer, do you remember a conversation you had when everything went black? There was another long pause. I said, you told me in the operating room that you talked with God. There was a long pause. He stared at me. I held up the ABC board. He spelled out, I think so. I can't remember now. I was spellbound. I would have remembered that in spades forever. Or maybe not. I'm not sure. Archer closed his eyes and then opened them and looked at me again and said, still using the ABC board, what James says is accurate. I am grateful to be alive. I am too. I am too, darling. We both seemed acutely aware of the sound that seemed to fill the room, piercing the silence, Archer's mechanical breathing on the ventilator. Archer then asked how much longer it would be for him on the lung machine. I told him I did not know. It was about the 10th time that day he had asked me. I knew he wanted off that machine. I wondered if that machine was hard on him. I told him I would let him know whenever I knew. I then said, Arch, if they tell me something new, like it'll be more than two weeks, do you really want to know? Don't you think maybe just one day at a time might be better? And I'll fill you in if anything new. They've said so many different things, and some of the stuff is crazy. It really is. He blinked once. Yes? Yeah, yes, what? I realized I had just asked him a string of different questions. I'm sorry. Okay, one at a time. A, you want me to tell you when I think there's a change? Or B, you want me to tell you everything they tell me? A, he looked at me. 
be? He blinked once. I pressed. Really? But I don't know that they really know, Archer, to be honest with you. They tell me different things. I think it might just be confusing. It crossed my mind. I might be crossing a boundary here. You know, the parent information boundary? That tension between a kid's asking a good question and your knowledge, but maybe more than they need or can digest given their age, right? Oh, my mind raced. What had I just fallen into? There are so many important parental boundaries. I tried hard as a parent over the years to know when to ask, how to answer, and when to tell. You know, big things like six-year-olds asking how babies are made, and 10-year-olds thinking kissing is intercourse, and 14-year-olds wondering why people die and where they go. Big stuff. What about medical information? The pulmonologist in the hall earlier today telling me, dead seriously, that we were lucky Archer was alive? Was that something I should tell to Archer? How about the nurse assessor yesterday who says Archer won't ever have feeling in his arms, hands, or legs again? Do I tell that to Archer? I wonder what your thoughts are about this. Archer and I sat in the quiet. I know he knew I was thinking about this. I said, Archer, you're going to need to rest and heal, honey. So much happens here every day. I think I should talk to doctors and take care of things and keep you apprised of important stuff. Or I could tell you what each of them is saying, but there's just a lot. And some of it really makes no sense. And it contradicts what others are saying. I know my son, and I could tell that as soon as I said that, he might choose to know everything. And I wasn't sure I could live with his answer. Could you? I mean, rule number one for a trial lawyer, never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. But rule number one, from mediator, only ask questions you have no idea what the answer is for broader perspective taking and problem solving. But this was neither. I was asking a question to which I thought I did know the answer. But I wasn't sure if I could live with the answer. Archer had only been 16 years old two weeks ago. He had just turned 17. What if he said he wanted to know everything? Would I tell him everything as he struggled to breathe? Would I tell him that Dr. Radcliffe said his C4 break was like a dam and nothing below the top of his chest would work because the electrical current was severed? My God, what would that do to his hope? Would you tell him if he were your son? And what was he entitled to know at that moment? Was he entitled to know because he was a patient? A child? Are children ever entitled to know? Do they have patient rights? But Archer was 17, and he was smart. He was six foot two. He was turning into a young man. Should we think of him as an adult? But even if he were an adult, what if telling him caused him harm? What if telling him caused depression? What if telling him caused him to give up? Would I be able to live with myself 
Would that be terrible parental judgment? I closed my eyes and I asked God to please give me guidance. I studied Archer. He continued to look right at me. He was still bright-eyed and now a little shiny from the perspiration from the fever. Archer, it's not a good time to decide, honey. You have a fever. But then what came over me in that moment is that Archer is a smart kid and he will help the doctors figure this out. It seemed so quiet in the room all of a sudden. I took in a deep breath and I said, Arch, do you want me to tell you everything I learn or just parts that I think would be good for you to hear? There's a lot and it might not be helpful or useful if you heard everything. I lifted up the ABC board. He spelled out, you decide. Hmm. I said, okay. And I echoed, I'll decide. I felt a little relief, but I could tell Archer was not finished. I held up the board again and he spelled out E V everything. Oh, I decide everything. He blinked twice. <laughs> I laughed. Got it. You're thinking more about it, huh? And you think you want me to tell you everything? Really? He blinked once. Okay, then I promise I will do that. I want to talk with Dad about it, though. You know what? I felt real relief. <laughs> I felt exhilarated. I felt grounded. I felt like Archer and we would be partners. And we'd help this medical team figure him out. And I really felt this lift, like my arms were lighter, that, of course, Archer needs to know everything. Archer and I are also both type threes in the Enneagram typing system of personality. I, I don't want to go down that garden path today, but it's an incredibly useful system of motivation and patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving that allow faster personal development. I gave it to all my kids when they're 12. Anyway, Archer had typed himself out as a type three. And I looked right at him. Okay, type three, we will do this. But you know what then came over me? Archer himself will figure this out. If we give him the information. It felt like the room had shifted. And just then, Billy walked in. I was so grateful. Billy had told me he would wait. But I was surprised to see him. I was flooded with that gesture he had given me earlier of kindness and that he was allowing this overlapping time because I knew it was not his preference. I don't know if Billy will ever have any idea what it fully meant to me that day, that time of waiting. Without that time, this conversation may have never happened or happened when it did. <laughs> I told Billy the promise I just made to Archer. I think it was affirming for Archer to hear my confidence in him as I told Billy why I was going to tell Archer everything and that it was Archer's preference. Billy turned to Archer and he said, 
You sure, Arch? Mom can just take care of it. Some of it's kind of rough. And some of it's kind of flaky. You sure you want to know all that stuff? Archer blinked once. Billy said, okay. And I said to Billy, are you okay with it? He said, well, I guess so. Archer had that bright, shiny look in his eyes again. Our pact was sealed. I wonder how you feel about that. Would you have done the same thing if it were your child? I know it's very contextual. Age, circumstances, so many things. What would you have done if it were your elderly parent? Or what if your partner had disagreed with you? Or your siblings disagreed with you and your elderly parent about a precious conversation you had just had? It's not an easy topic. And most of these decisions couldn't really be made until you're in the context. But I do think the more we can talk about these things ahead of time, the better. The patient might have a lot of different views than the caregivers or family members too. I mean, think about it. If you were in the ICU on narcotics or feeling totally out of it, what would you want to know? Or... Maybe you wouldn't want to know. Is there anything you would not want to know? Well, as highly differentiated as all these circumstances are, what I can tell you definitively is that every person in an ICU needs someone at all times by their side. I was just beginning to see the reasons beyond just wanting to give comfort to your loved one. Why having someone else with you in an ICU is so important. An alert family member should be part of the critical care team. (laughs) Maybe medical insurance would cover that, huh? Oh, my goodness. I stayed on that night with Archer and Billy until about 3 a.m. or so. It was nice. You want to know what else happened? A trauma doctor came round. Yep, I think he must have just finished surgery on someone else. I had gone around and put the word out to the floor nurses that I was hoping to talk with a physician tonight about Archer's caloric intake. I'd learned earlier, trying to figure out the calculations, that he only had about 240 calories a day. And we were on day five. I couldn't understand how he was to muster the energy to ever get off that breathing machine. I wanted to know if caloric intake was related to the ability to breathe on those machines or if he needed more calories. And I wondered how much weight he had lost and if that was in any way related to why he felt so much pressure on his lungs. The trauma doctor entered Archer's room. It was around 2.30, 2.45. We were surprised. We said hello. I had my question ready, and I asked. Well, as the doctor, still in his blue scrubs, looked at me and Billy to respond, it was my first time to put into practice the promise. I asked the doctor, if he wouldn't mind getting a little closer to our son, Archer, so he could hear him since we had promised we'd share all the information with him. I don't know about Billy and Archer, but it felt great to me because I was clear about our plan and we were together on it. The doctor rather awkwardly moved a little closer to Archer, but... (laughs) still defaulted to speaking with Billy and me. He just said the same old standard stuff we were used to. He wasn't the treating doc, asked the tech, a nurse could tell us about the feeding tube. But I said we were just wondering generally about calories and lung machines. He said it was not his specialty. 
He was so different from that one pulmonologist I happened to see in the hallway earlier that day who moved my heart because his heart was moved. He knew all about Archer, even though Archer was not even his patient. He took notice and he cared. But this guy, Dr. Routine, okay, I'm getting used to this. Well, at least we had a chance to try out our promise request. I could see it might not be easy though. And Archer got a taste of it too when he was alert and could see for himself. So, okay, Archer heard it firsthand, sort of, you know, the nothingness, but that was okay. He will get a sense of this and that will be part of what we have to figure out how to navigate. Maybe you have some tricks for how you have navigated medical care, but this new world was just beginning to show itself to me. You might be on the receiving end of not my specialty response, which really does not contribute to healing. You know, Archer's entire future depended on this hospital team. We needed every single one of them and their expertise. We needed them all to care. But we were finding that just like life, some were excellent and some were just so-so. But I wondered what it was like for all these trauma doctors. It must be hard to be a trauma doctor. And we were probably just another trauma case. I didn't know. I reached out five years later to someone who would know, Dr. Ray Tallucci. Dr. Tallucci was the acting chief of trauma at Atlantic Care Hospital in Atlantic City, New Jersey, the day Archer was medevaced to Atlantic Care, August 2015, and for the duration of our stay at Atlantic Care. He graciously granted me an interview. And here is an excerpt. So where should, where should we begin? It's been five years. And I was so moved uh, when you said there are some cases you will never forget. And Archer is one of them. Well, I mean, it's funny because, you know, we, you don't, I mean, you talk about relationships and I know that's, that's, you know, bag, so to speak, but this is the type of relationship nobody wants to be in, yet we're forced into it and we're forced into it um, um, because we have no choice. I mean, you know, it's not like you invite somebody out for dinner and, and, and spend six hours with them talking about their personal feelings. No, we're stuck in this artificial environment with, with a crisis situation with people you don't know, strangers, and you're sharing such personal information with them every minute. And that, those, that relationship is intense and it is extremely, um, uh, I don't know, difficult, sensitive, whatever. I mean, all the above. Yeah. And, the above. Um, and it, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. It's like you, for, it's, it's like, you know, forgetting Archer. Have I forgotten the first girl I ever dated that I fell in love with? No, you never forget your St. Pauli girl. You never forget your first girl. Likewise, you never forget patients that make an impression upon you, and and if you're not moved by by a 15 year old who has a catastrophic accident that is going to change his life forever, you don't belong in medicine. Mm. You know that's why you show up every day. Well, I I thank you for honoring the emotional connection because. Um, we met a number of physicians along the way um, and, and some care workers at Atlantic Care too, who didn't have that desire to have their hearts moved or open in any way. It was just all routine. And um, I will say, however, that 
we we looked for the ones who wanted to have that emotional connection because they are going to be on the archer team um, because it makes a difference. It, you know, when you when you care and you bring that caring ethic to your decision making and to your actions, outcome you can pretty much handle most outcomes, even when they're when they're bleak. You know, it's that whole, you know, I, I know there was a couple of uh, trip ups we had, especially in communication early on, and stories that you would, you would get from say, Chris Radcliffe, he would tell you one thing about the spine and, you know, the spine stable. And, and then, you know, you think, oh, it's stable, it's, it's going to get better, you know, but, and, and then we come along and there's a, a different story. Then of course, you know, we, some of the resident and house staff will come in and they're at 2.30 in the morning and then you get a different story. And I, I remember one incident in particular that you were really upset that we spent, God, about 45 minutes to an hour trying to sort things out. And I was trying to you kind of, you know, orient you to say, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people gonna walk in this room. We're all really saying the same, same things. We may be using different language and I think and I think our families in particular, because of this, this is so, the, the accident is so devastating that you're, you hold on to any piece of information that you want to hear, as opposed to information, all the information you should hear and, and, and weigh it out. And, and, and that usually, that takes almost about a week to 10 days for families like yours who have someone who's going to be in the unit for that long. And it has, has catastrophic injury to really begin to understand how complex this thing really is and that I can't, there are no predictions that that come true you know there there were only we can only say what we know and tell you what we know and then we something has that you know something happens and then we we react almost so it's it's hard the human body is a complex thing Yes, the human complex thing. You know, I, I remember you're reminding me really vividly that I was getting um, my first dose of so many people working on Archer and with a different story. And my sense was that they were operating on like the last document that was in whatever medical file. And I was operating on that and all of the ones that preceded that cumulatively and getting really um, frightened that the communication was so siloed that one person may not have also had a piece of information. And I think that's where you and I really, really connected because you knew that. Yeah. I wasn't making it up. No, no. I not. And I do remember that, 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 that time we spent together, like it was yesterday, seriously, that's how, you know, and, and you said, it's really funny. And then I, I, if I remembered Archer, I would say Archer's name uh, comes up at least once or twice a month when people still refer to that experience in different, you know, in different, in different uh, discussions. Wow. So, so everyone remembers Archer. Wow, and, and why? In what ways does it come up? Amazing. Well, it's just because of the nature of someone who's 15 years old, who's got his life ahead of him, has a family who loves him, and is all, you know, there's, you know, everyone lives through you. All the, all the, you know, the, everyone has children in that, that at our home. And we all think of, my God, you know, this, this could be my child. Yes. This could be my child. You know, and we all think of that, and and that's how, that's how it becomes so important. So, uh, you know, I, I was kind of surprised when you didn't think we would remember it. So, because I think everyone kind of thinks that you know we we remember. I would like to think that anyway, because that's what an emotional impression it all makes upon us. Doctor Tolucci and I had quite a relationship at Atlantic Care. You will meet him again in future episodes. We locked horns, and he was my witness, for which I am forever grateful. I was surprised in our interview of what he said. I had no idea.
but I was also very interested in the experience of a trauma doctor. Well, I felt even during our time five years ago at Atlantic Care that Dr. Tolucci understood the dynamics of a catastrophic injury through the eyes of a patient and family. Not every trauma doctor does. But it touched me how hard it must be for those doctors who resonated with a patient and family that this could be their child. I think that would be gut-wrenching. And it has caused me to really wonder about secondary trauma for medical doctors and nurses. I asked Dr. Tolucci about this. Well, it is, you know, our, our job, you know, it's, we, we have a, I think the, um, the day-to-day uh, activity of what we do is, is pretty much routine, uh, regardless of how catastrophic it may appear to an individual family. What we do and the type of care we render is really, um, you know, it's intense and extraordinary, but that's what the trauma team does every day. Every person on that team functions in that capacity. And, um, and I mean, it's just striking to me to kind of, kind of bring in some recent history, you know, uh, of the COVID outbreak and things of that sort. The person that, that died first in China was just a opt- ophthalmologist who was examining an 85-year-old woman his normal workday. And it really struck me that everyone that walks into those doors of the hospital every day exposes themselves to unknown pathogens, unknown traumas, unknown experiences uh, that may be life-threatening and that certainly uh, affect us every day in our personal lives. It's really extraordinary those who dedicate their lives to working in trauma. Part of my look back journey is a deeper dialogue from the distance, if you will, the distance that time affords once the intensity is not so intense for greater understanding. I am grateful for these individuals. I am also only imagining why some of them are so tough because of what they have to hold together all the time to keep their safe distance. Well, as Dr. Tolucci said, it's true. Something else was beginning to crystallize for me too, how essential relationships are. And those relationships have opportunities to go deeper. Like he said, relationships are important to me, all of them, including those with people who help you in a stressful time that you may have hoped to never actually see again because of the painful reminder. But that is only if you don't heal from that trauma or bad situation. I realized that night in Archer's room that my favorite relationships were partnerships. Partnerships with friends, partnerships with professional colleagues, with my siblings, with Billy, and now with one of my children as he was maturing. Working on something together, messy, creative, pulling on each other's talents, feeling connected and supported, even when there's some conflict and it's not easy, but figuring it out together. I love partnerships. I felt myself starting to yearn for partnership with Atlanticare. Was it possible with medical staff? I was about to leave and showed Archer and Billy a text from my friend, Wayne Ruth, whom I knew from the Order of Malta. He had sent it at 6 a.m. that morning, 
And I'm telling you, it was a 24-7 nonstop experience. Wayne said, expect miracles to keep happening. We called our friend in Lourdes today and asked them to light a candle at the grotto. Much love. <laughs> yes, miracles. Right, Arch? Just then, a nurse named Rachel poked her head into Archer's room. It was like 3 a.m. She must have seen the lights on. She was so cute and cheery. She said, you probably don't recognize me because I'm on night shift tonight, just covering for another nurse. And she looked right at Archer as she said that. And then she said, remember me, Archer? I thought I recognized her. Yes, she had come to give Archer a sponge bath, I think, on Friday. I waited to see if there was any recognition for Archer. Undaunted, she continued to talk directly to Archer. And she said, Archer, I'm on covering for another nurse on night duty, but I'll be back this coming week and I want to wash your hair again. You've got amazing hair. And she laughed and it was funny and it was cute. Archer does have great hair, thick and soft hun hair from my mom's side. Most of my boys have it. That felt like partnership. It did. Oh my gosh. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You may continue listening to the learnings that go with this story at episode 28, Tell Him Everything, Trauma Healing Learnings. Thank you for listening, as together we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face -face dialogue. You can learn more at BaltimoreMediation.com.